STEMQ New England Northwest brings together expertise in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics from across the region. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and here on the STEMQ podcast, you'll be hearing from leaders in industry, community, government, and universities about the groundbreaking innovations that are happening right here in regional New South Wales. This podcast is recorded on Anaiwan country at the University of New England in Armadale. Welcome back. This episode, I'm joined by the Director of Place-Based Education and Research at the University of New England, Associate Professor Melanie Filios. Melanie, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, James. Nice to be here. Now, whenever I chat with someone who has director at the beginning of their title, it's (laughs) usually the director of an organization or an institution, or there's sometimes an ology in there. Director of Place-Based Education and Research signs quite all-encompassing and, and broad. Can, can you define what this role is? I can try to. Sure, I'm a jack-of-all-trades, I think, but that, that's, that's probably in keeping with my education anyway. So Director of Place-Based Education and Research looks to um, create programs or educational offerings that are relevant to this, the geography of that particular place. So if we're looking at Tamworth, we look to create offerings that are unique to the Tamworth community that fill a need, fill a gap, address something that they need. Same with research. So we're doing research which is place-based, meaning we're addressing a problem that is unique to that location. It's kind of interesting when you get to UNE because of course a lot of our offerings are online. So that online space is actually another place as well. So you were right. It is all encompassing. <laughs> it's it's trying to take it, it's taking a very different look at how we do education and trying to make it relevant. I think as educators or, or good educators, when we stand up in front of a classroom, you always try and find that um, story, that thing that re- that catches the individual attention of a particular student. So if you want to engage students, you try and find that thing which is relevant and personal to them. And I I very much view that as the role or the space for place-based education. And then, of course, to to be able to do that, we have to work across education, community, and industry. So we juggle a lot of things, and it really is working in a very large team to deliver something which is tailored and unique to a specific cohort. So I'm interested in what that looks like for <laughs> someone, say, teaching or doing research here at the Armadale campus. So I guess the question then is understanding where where are we? Well, I guess if we had to step back and we'd say, if you're on the Armadale campus right now, what are the needs of the community in Armadale? What specific challenges is Armadale facing? So we've had a number of natural disasters in the last few years. But where are the skills gaps? Where are the education gaps? Uh, How are we tracking with indigenous education? What could we be doing better? Where can we not find people to fill jobs? That's what we would be looking at. So we know nationally, for example, that we've got a shortage of teachers. Should we be looking at specific programs in education that help to maybe take people who are thinking of a career change and saying, do you want to come and become a teacher? Do you want to become a science teacher? Do you want to become an English teacher? What could we do to make that transition easier, drawing on the skills that you've acquired throughout your life? Um, So it might look like that in the education space. I know the new Armadale Regional Council is looking very much at that renewable energy um, corridor and trying to make the New England Northwest a center for renewable energy. So what kind of jobs will we be needing in renewable energy? What skills will they need? What kind of educational opportunities will they need? What kind of qualifications? 
So that would be an example where we work together with the council and with local industries to say, here are the kinds of jobs we want to do. Here are the skills we might need. Now what kind of programs can we tailor in, let's say, recycling of solar panels, for example? And you mentioned online as mm. being a place, mm -hmm. but of course we've learnt for better or worse, there are lots of places online. Can we sort of understand where an online student is or do we need to create an online environment for them so we can deliver things effectively? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think we often refer to lately the third space and it's that intersection of online and face-to-face -face and trying to f um, identify the needs of an online student. And it, you know, I, I think the challenge is that it's different for different cohorts. So if you're an online student who may be our more typical student, which is a woman in their mid-30s with children, that particular individual might have very different needs than someone who's a school leaver, 20, working full-time and doing uni on a part-time basis. That person who doesn't have as much experience in education might, meet a more, might need a more supportive environment. Um, so when we look at tailoring the online space, I think geography is less of a determiner um, than potentially where you are in life, where your cohort is, who you identify with, what your life experiences are. And in that sense, it's really challenging because we are trying to personalize and tailor learning. And you know, one of the goals of the, our strategic plan, Future Fitter, is, is personalized learning journeys. And I think that's where all these spaces come together to try and say, okay, well, James, what do you need as a, you know, if you're a mature age learner and you've already have a degree and you want to you want to change, but you're working full time and maybe you have a family, what kind of support would you need? What kind of programs would you be looking for? And, and what should be the shape of those? Because I think one of the problems at the moment is that we all grew up in a time when education was pretty traditional. So three, four year degrees, depending on where you came from. You studied full time, you studied at night, maybe you had a part time job, but it was pretty well uni was your life. And that's just not the case for the majority of people anymore. University has been become something or studying or learning new skills has become something that you do throughout your lifetime. And you might come and go at different points in your life. So when I was, um, um, was I pregnant with my son, I decided I didn't want to do archaeology anymore, I'll forget this university stuff, and I was really interested in public health. So I went back to school to study a master's of public health. And it was really eye-opening because the way I approached it as a then 31-year-old, no, God, I'm lying, 37-year-old, I wish, um, was very different than I approached studying when I was 21 or 27 or 17. I mean, we do this with lots of stuff. We look back to how we experienced it in life and then we go, you know, it's the kids these days that are doing it wrong type of thing. But you're right, there is definitely something about universities that have changed a lot and very recently. Do you think universities are changing along with the world? Or are these big beasts that need a big, big pushing to move <laughs> forward? I think everyone will have a different view on this for sure. So you will commonly hear that in Australia, universities are really um, slaves to government funding, right? So if government says, we want to push a skills-based agenda, we want you to teach skills, universities jump to teach skills. So is it the tail wagging the dog or, you know, that that's the question. And I think it's a little bit of both, but there is always supply and demand. So I still think, you know, maybe my American upbringing, but it is a free market and students still do vote with their feet. And, you know, we have examples from some of the places 
we've been where the government very much says, hey, here are the skills gaps. Here's where the jobs of the future are. So we create those programs and students go, yeah, nah, not interested. That's, you know, <laughs> I want to study paleontology. And we actually do have an example of, of that where, you know, here's project management, here's logistics, here's manufacturing. But paleontology is what they want. And I think that's where the interesting intersection comes. Because in, in my view and in a lot of people's views, we look at the role of university as teaching these, we call them soft skills, but it's critical thinking. It's the ability to problem solve. And I don't think problem solving is a soft skill. Problem solving is something that you use throughout your life. So if you want to problem solve in paleontology, why is that any different than problem solving for logistics? If we instead teach people to really think about a problem and to do their research and to look critically into a question, maybe it's climate change, that's changing our future, right? That is the goal of education. The jobs of the future, they're going to shift. Those jobs that are here today may not be here tomorrow. And I think that's one of the challenges of place-based education is that when we talk to stakeholders or government and they say, yep, yeah, it's very specific. We, know we, we need town planners and we need them now. We need urban planners. You need them now. Will you need them in five years, in 10 years? But what are the skills we can teach an urban planner that they can take from urban planning to something else? And, and, and that's the challenge. So I think the challenge in place-based education and the challenge for universities more broadly is to, to step back and pause and say, what is it that we are going to need in the future? What do students want? But also, what do we need as a society? It's a tricky question. There's no right answer. And I think, as we often say, there's no roadmap here. Where I don't want to say we're figuring out as we're going along because it really makes it sound like we're flying by the seat of our pants. Um, but that's not the case. It's very much that there is a new, universities are going off in a new direction, I think, from the way we all learned. And there isn't one direction. Um, so we're in this space now where I think we need to be innovators. We need to be thinking about doing things differently. We need to be listening to our students because we're here for the students. But we also need to keep in mind that reason why we're all here and, and how that feeds into the future. I imagine your own field of archaeology would kind of experience a lot of this as well. It's a, uh, an old field that studies old things and old ways of doing things. <laughs> yeah. I imagine students will be coming into this with uh, a decision in their head about what they're getting themselves into, right? Yeah, well, I don't think National Geographic or Discovery Channel has really helped us, nor Indiana Jones. Um, but I think that, sure, everybody comes to a discipline with a, a, a set of ideas about what they think it's going to be like. So we certainly change some people's minds, I would think, in our discipline. Um, but I think equally we attract people to it. I think what people don't realize about archaeology is just how inter- and multidisciplinary it is. And if I had to choose one skill for archaeologists, it would be that critical thinking. It would be the ability to look at a problem in a different way. So, so really, an archaeology student is no different than a student of uh, environmental science or biology or physics, in that they are taking a problem and trying to unpick that problem and look at the causes, the effects, analyze it, look at, apply a scientific method to um, trying to find a solution. So I think the problems, the, the approach to solving a problem, there are lots of common ways to approach solving a problem, whether you're in archaeology or any other field. But Is that ever a conversation you need to have with a student that 
you know, work harder with your archaeology degree because chances are you're not going to be an archaeologist and that's okay. Oh, we're not supposed to say that, are you? <laughs> that's like all the parents that we get saying, yeah, you can't, no, 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 you can't go study archaeology. You really want to be an accountant. <laughs> I always have always said you should follow your dreams and you should study what you love. Mm. And it is transferable. So because archaeology is so multidisciplinary, you know, we use the statistics, for example, it uses chemistry, it uses geology, it uses ecology, it uses biology, it uses a history. In my view, could you have a more, a, a better preparation for a job than an archaeology student? I'm, I'm trying to sell it to prospective employers. But, you know, also the archaeology um, field is, is fairly high demand right now because we all know Australia's affinity with mining. And before we mine, we have to have um, an archaeology well, an ecological survey, geological survey, archaeological survey done. And if something is found, then you, know, you go on and take it to the next step. So in Australia, there are a lot of jobs for archaeologists, a lot of them in that cultural heritage sphere, but a lot working with land councils. Um, the university sector is probably a smaller market, but there are certainly a lot of jobs for archaeologists. So looking back at your own archaeology specialty, mm-hmm. How did you end up there? Did you start off with that direction in mind? <laughs> no, <laughs> the accidental <laughs> tourist, I think. Um, I started off as an anthrop- well, history and anthropology major. Initially, I wanted to uh, do languages and travel the world, right? So the traveling part, that was fairly consistent. So I thought that was a common thread. Um, and I walked, in, I transferred universities in my sophomore year of college, and I walked into the anthropology department, because in the U.S. you do archaeology in an anthropology department, and there was a a professor there who said, I didn't want to do cultural anthropology. I should come and be an archaeologist, so I should come to this field school. So I did an eight-week field school in uh, southern Idaho in this place called the Snake River. It's high desert. There's no toilets. There's no showers. You're in tents. They're pretty hot during the day, and there's a lot of rattlesnakes. It was great. (laughs) <laughs> and I loved it. And I was outside every day, and I, it was completely in my element. Because you're using all of your critical thinking skills. You're outside, you're physically active, and then you get to take those things that you find and bring them back to a lab and say, hmm, what does this mean? And the only mm-hmm. way you can say, what does this mean, is by looking at lots of different aspects um, or, or lots of different forms of evidence. So, no, I thought I was going to, I n- never thought about archaeology, never crossed my mind. Ever. <laughs> and you've worked sort of all over the world, then answering different questions, mm-hmm. coming from a place like the States and then making a big leap to the other side of the world and ending up in Australia, mm-hmm. I guess getting back to this idea of place and working in a new place. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you starting from scratch? Yep. <laughs> trying to figure out what sort of questions are relevant to, to um, your new workplace? N- yes and no. So, no, you're not starting from scratch in that we're asking the same questions about what it means to be human and human behavior. So I think that's one of the misconceptions that students bring to archaeology is they think it's about things. You know, the the common question we get is, what's the best thing you've found? What's the most exciting thing you've ever found? Um, But it's not about that. It's about the things that you find. It's about what those things tell you about human behavior and reconstructing human behavior. And when I say that, I mean, how do people live? Some archaeologists try to approach what people thought. There's a whole part of archaeology that deals with that. That's a bit harder. You know, I mean, it goes beyond diet. It goes to belief systems. It goes to people moving around, why people might want to move around. 
why people abandon sites. So we worked on a site in Greece uh, that was abandoned, and the big question there was, well, why did people leave? Probably because there was no water. So we're bringing in these ecological questions to why people behave as they do. So we're studying human behavior, whether we're studying it in Australia or in Greece or in the United States. So that was the constant. I think what's different in a new place is the way things are approached. Um, there are certainly traditions that are different in, in Australia than the United States and the UK, for example. And I think also starting over with those connections and just a different way of approaching the problem. It's still the same question, but the approach to that question is slightly different. As well as studying human behavior, you're studying, I guess, something close to my heart, which is animal behavior and how humans and animals have interacted. Where did that interest start? Accidentally again. So, you know, to anyone who thinks they have their entire career mapped out, (laughs) uh, let me tell you, it can change. And I think if I can sidetrack, if I can go off to the side for a minute, I think that's one of the things that I find interesting in the drive now with universities and, and more skills is because in preparing people for a certain job because I don't know about anyone else but I never set out to do this and even along the way things have changed. So if I come back to how I started looking at animal bones, I originally started looking at human bones. Human remains to me have always been fascinating and I studied them pretty intensively until a professor during my PhD said, well that's all fine. However, everybody wants to study humans, and they're just another animal. Mm. So if you also study animals, you broaden your ability to work anywhere across different sites, across different places in the world, and, and across different time periods. And it was the best advice I ever got. You know, they, don't, they, didn't hold, they didn't initially hold that interest to me because I'm interested in human behavior, so I want to I look at those human bones. But it, it's not about that. It's that the human-animal relationship is really complex. And looking at animal bones, sometimes alongside the human bones, can help us to untangle that relationship. And that's, you know, I always say in my classes, everybody has a relationship with animals. You love them, you hate them, you eat them, you don't, you worship them, you sacrifice them, you wear them, or maybe not. You're for animal testing, live exports, whatever it is. But animals touch your life in some way. And they tell us a lot about who we are. So... There's the common sentiment that, you know, show me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are. I'd say, tell me about your relationship with animals and I'll also tell you who you are. And, you know, we can think of lots of different examples through time. In in Cyprus, it's during the Islamic period, it was whether you ate pork or you didn't eat pork. That could be help you to say who might have lived in this particular area in the absence of those people by looking at those animal remains. So, again, it's back to that human behavior. And I might argue that animals can give us just the same, if not a better picture of how past peoples would have lived than the bones of humans themselves. Particularly because one of the things you work on is a really, really crucial human-animal relationship with dogs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And specifically, more recently, on dingoes, Mm -hmm. which, again, is a real hot topic, particularly in an area like we're in, in in a regional farming area. So I guess let's get to the heart of it. There's been lots of discussion about whether they're dogs, whether they're native, whether they're not. Mm-hmm. Why does that matter? It matters because how what you call them in this political climate um, delineates how they are managed, if I put it that way. So if they are a native species, 
If the dingo is a native species, then you need to protect it. If it's a native species that played a pivotal role in indigenous cosmology and indigenous heritage, and it's a, a species with whom indigenous people have uh, an intricate relationship, it's much harder to make the case that you need to cull. If you call them a wild dog, which means, ah, oh, it's just, you know, Europeans let their dogs, they didn't, spray, they didn't spay them, and they're an introduced species, let's say. If they're introduced, we can manage them, we can cull them, we can poison them, it doesn't matter. But when we introduce that, oh, they might have been here a bit longer than we think, they might have an important role to play in, in Aboriginal culture, that becomes a lot harder. So I want to put a, a real cynic's hat on and say, if I were a government official and I wanted to control dingoes, or if I was a farmer and I wanted dingoes controlled, I'd call them a wild dog. And I know it sounds skeptical, and that's been the focus of a lot of the research I've been doing, as well as a lot of different people. And this is really a, um, a multidisciplinary team of people that's been trying to address this question. And unfortunately, I think political agendas often get in the way of this. I mean, you know, we can all look at voting bases in Australia and how they influence politics, and the dingo is no different. And unfortunately, it's become a really a real polarizing animal. And, and, the, and it's a relationship that's really hard to approach because the dingo isn't going to talk to you, nor are they going to come back from the dead. So to try and untangle how long that animal's been here and what that relationship is, is really difficult. And when we, and it, when we just look at a dingo or we look at a wild dog, the, the, its, physio, its physical appearance might not always provide the information that we need. And so we very much started looking at DNA and, and isotopic analysis and, some of, and carbon dating and at some of these um, radiometric techniques or, or absolute techniques to try and figure out a little bit more than we can get with just looking at that animal in front of us and looking at explorer's journals, for example. Does that mean you've felt some pressure to, to have particular findings or conclusions in this? As an academic, I'm lucky. <laughs> no, no one's ever pressured me. Um, and I think that's one of the great things about, uh, the, one of the great things about research in universities, and, and particularly more science-based research, is that one of the things I like about scientific techniques is that they are... I wouldn't say completely 100% objective because we still have that element of, of human action in there. There's still a person that has to design that experiment and run it and whatnot. But the data can tell a different story, especially if you use data from multiple sources. And so um, I, I would argue that being in a university gives you that freedom or being in an academic environment gives you that freedom to, bring all, to look at all of these different forms of evidence to come up with as parsimonious an explanation as possible as to what the dingo is, where it came from, how long it's been here, what its relationship was. Um, and I think one of the drawbacks we've had to research with dingoes is that a lot of it's been done on modern populations. Mm. And that looking just at that modern population and, and how it is in Australia now may not be a good proxy for what it was like 500 years ago. 5,000 years ago. I think it's um, that the research can be used for political gain on both sides, but I've, certainly I think that's one of the wonderful things about universities is that freedom to 
try and find the truth, as it were. You have that ability to go back and ask for more funding and to ask more questions. And I think one of the things that always attracted me to education was I love to ask questions. I don't really care what the field is. I, I, I would ask the same questions of Shakespeare or physics as I would of archaeology. I think it's just that, that hunger to know more and to ask why. And I think we should all do that. And if I come back to universities in the future and everything, all these questions that are floating around the sector right now, I think we should never lose track of asking why. And we should use as many forms of evidence and as many different fields and questions as we can to, to ask to come to that why. Why are, you know, why are we doing it this way? Why is it this way? What can we be doing differently? How can we change this? That's our remit. It's a, it's a big task. But if we kept that in mind, I, I think it gives us a, a different reason for being here, in a way. I have to ask then, yeah. do we have a definitive <laughs> answer? What are they? Dingoes? Look, there's been some recent papers <laughs> that have come out. There, um, that I think the most recent paper suggests that they are not related at all to domestic dogs mm -hmm. and wild dogs. So that potentially unrelated from an, a, a different lineage altogether. And that's one of the questions that we're exploring to looking at ancient DNA. So we have some uh, over 30 samples right now that we're looking at that are being analyzed for, for dating and for their genetics and for their diet. And we're hoping that they will complement that research. But all indications at the moment is that they have been here for a while and they are not domesticated. And so that's another big question, right? Because you have that human-dog relationship. And we assume that they were domestic dogs but it seems to be a bit more complex than that and we, yeah we know of other types of wild dogs or mm -hmm. dog-like things at least does that I mean where did you mentioned before that they don't just look like the ones we see in pictures and there mm -hmm. can be a whole lot of variation in them do you know where this idea of the orange pointy-eared thing came from? Ah, uh, there are a few theories on that one, but it, it seems to be that there's a, you know, there's a New Guinea singing dog, and there's also uh, village dogs all up and down Indonesia and Southeast Asia. So the dingo seems to have a lot of physical similarities to New Guinea singing dog and, and Southeast Asian village dogs. And one focus of research has been to look at the genetic relationships between the three. The problem is in finding samples. And so back to sort of the romantic view of archaeologists and digging holes, what we need are more samples that are old and archaeological. And that's really challenging to find. Because interestingly, it goes back to that relationship between humans and dogs. And so if they were domesticated and they were man's best friend, so to speak, we would expect to find them in settlement contexts. And certainly in Australia, we have some dingoes that were ritualistically, they were buried and they were buried alongside humans and they were given um, a special burial. So that speaks to some sort of importance and some sort of role with people. Finding those remains in other places has been a challenge, especially in tropical environments. And, and one of the reasons I say archaeology is so multidisciplinary is because you have all these other factors to take into account. We just assume, you know, this cup, uh, I leave it someplace, it gets buried, and then you come along in a thousand years and you dig it up and the cup is as, is as it was when I used it. But we have something called taphonomy, and it's all of the environmental factors that act on that cup over that thousand-year period to say it's going to survive and it's going to be preserved or it, or it isn't. 
And the problem with um, humid tropical environments is bone does not preserve very well. And we're also at the mercy of where you look and things remaining and villages not being put on top and cities not being built on top. So to actually find something in the field is quite a rare thing. I mean, I, I sort of liken it to dinosaurs in a way. You don't just dig up dinosaurs in your backyard. Some people might in Queensland, but not typically here. And especially in areas where we have long-term habitation, it is a really rare thing to find uh, archaeological remains. Maybe in the Mediterranean, it's a bit more common because you have that long-term history of occupation. But but certainly to just be going out and looking for um, ancient dogs and dingoes that are pre-contact, it's been really difficult to find. So one of our biggest challenges are samples. And without those samples, it makes it really difficult to try and answer some of the questions you're posing. Talking about going looking for samples, I mean, can you mm. just go looking or do you just need to stub your toe on one and find it? Is there, is there a way <laughs> to be very you know, deliberate about I'm going to find this and I expect to find it here? Uh, that's a question full stop in archaeology. Yeah. I think it, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a, there, look, there's a mixture of luck and um, I suppose knowing where to look. So certainly one of the challenges, if we stick with dingoes for a minute, is if we, we're looking for that human-animal relationship, right? However, if we are excavating an indigenous context um, and dingoes are found in that context, then it becomes a cultural context and there are, um, it's, it's not, we can't just say, well, we'll take those bones and we'll go and analyze it. Uh, we need to work with the traditional owners and it needs to be very much a partnership and a decision together about what's the way forward here because they're in a cultural context. Um, if we go find dingoes that are not in a cultural context, so died naturally, wild, uh, that's very different. And they're difficult to find. So again, you're probably not going to start digging holes all around the Pilbara, right, and, mm. and finding stuff. But a lot of this stuff gets discovered through mining, uh, by cavers, accidentally. So I think a lot of the... Uh, assemblages that we have now or the archaeological remains we have now are uncovered that way. Certainly the mining boom has changed a lot for us. So, you know, in the last almost 20 years that I've been in Australia, we've pushed back human occupation by about 20,000 years. And that's really the volume of material. This mining boom, especially in WA, has meant that areas that haven't been looked at ever are now being scrutinized really heavily because, let's face it, they're going to be destroyed. And, um, and we, we saw evidence of that with Rio Tinto, right, a, f a few years ago or last year, year before. So it's a, a blessing and a curse. So we're, dis we're discovering more and more every day because we're looking, but we're failing to preserve it, and that's a whole other discussion. So it's hard to find. They're hard to find It's a short answer. You see similar sort of, I guess, I guess it's a moral quandary with sort of people doing environmental science that yep. go into it with a particular mindset and realize that where they're going to end up working and where they can probably make yep. the most difference is, say, for a, a mining company or something like that. Is that something you come across in Absolutely. archaeology? Yeah, yeah I've, I've had those very discussions and certainly work with enviros because the enviros are in there first. Um, and... I had this discussion with the director I, I worked for. So if you're a Rio Tinto, for example, you don't do your own archaeology. You have your own heritage area, but you subcontract out. And that's supposed to avoid the conflict of interest. Contract still has to go to you in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we won't go there. 
But the people I used to work for would always say, well, I've got faith that we're going to do it the right way. So, okay, the area is going to be decimated anyway. This area is slated for mining, and there's really nothing that's going to stop that. And, and we saw that. So our challenge then is to find these sites and to document them well and make sure the proper consultation is followed up and make sure that we get as much information as we can out of them and that we work together with the traditional owners to preserve what we can. And, you know, so is it a justification for being there? Not sure. Is it that, well, at least we have confidence in the way we're doing it. We're doing it systematically. If we bring in some research questions, that's really good. So most of the people I know that are doing it, I think their heart's in the right place. Um, mm. I think they really are trying to change it. Um, not change things, but document for posterity, knowing that this is, is going to be destroyed. You mentioned before about the freedom you have to ask particular questions mm -hmm. in academia and, or to give particular answers. Mm -hmm. Is that a given? Do you think that may change or, or people expect differently from universities? I th would hope not. I, I would like to be idealistic and say that the, the people that I know that go into research anyway are there because they've got a question to answer. A researcher to me as an inquiring mind, and they're going to ask that question, I hope, no matter who's backing it. Mm. Of course, people have all, you know, other agendas. But I think as long as we ensure freedom of speech and we uphold the rights of, of individuals and researchers to ask their own questions, um, and we're transparent and we declare our conflicts and we also look at where the funding comes from and we ensure that even if the funding comes from a BHP or a Rio, we are still um, ethically doing the right thing, I think we'll get there. But that's individuals, right? These decisions are made by individuals. We, we have to um, hope that people make the right decisions. I was going to ask then, is that something that you can uh, inculcate or, or make happen now that you're a, a director? <laughs> no. <laughs> You've had all these years of research and experienced it. <laughs> Nothing, no. No, because, look, universities are run by teams of people, and um, no one person has all of that influence. I think, you know, if we're talking about ethics, we have human ethics committees. So, and research ethics committees, and any research proposal has to go through that. So we try and, you know, as best we can, put in stopgap measures to protect people from themselves and others and hope they do the right thing, and that's all we can do. And now that you've stepped into this director role, mm -hmm. do you see yourself doing more of this type of work in the future, or would you like to go back into more teaching research eventually? I think that the best leaders in academia are also the ones that stay and keep their hand in teaching and research, because I think the field changes, and I think we all change as people. And when we take on different roles, uh, we, have different, we have different teams around us. And I think universities are here for students. And the students really drive the university. And we need to never forget that. And I think by continuing to teach and to research and to involve students in research, that helps me keep students first. And no matter what role I'm in um, and how <laughs> difficult it might be to juggle everything, I, I don't see myself ever not teaching and doing research. So I have a, a current research project right now, and I'll be teaching a class next term. And um, I just I think that's really important, and it's more of a North American model 
So even though you may not teach much, you teach enough to ensure that you never lose that ability to empathize and to understand what's happening on the ground. That's important. It's funny because there is so much that goes on in universities. It's mm-hmm. amazing how easy it is to forget that the two things they do is teaching and research. Yes, I, I look, I hear so often we've gone through that whole meeting and at the end of it we haven't mentioned students once. It's really important. It, 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 is, it is central to what we do. Without students, we're not here. And it is a challenge, and none of us have the right answers right now. Um, but I think it's something that I, I always am happy to see students taking a more active role in governance. So even you know, on, on our university council and on the academic board and on a variety of other committees, there is always a student rep. And I urge every student to put their hand up because you might learn something. As well as having your voice heard and, and potentially the voice of your fellow students, you also have an opportunity um, to shape policy and to let others know what your experiences are. And I think that's really important. Well, hopefully some students are listening to this and are hearing the <laughs> message loud and clear. Yes, get involved. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect point to end it on. Melanie, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining me here on the STEMQ podcast. Stay tuned to hear more stories as we work to empower STEM innovation through the STEMQ precinct.